0: Good morning. So good to be with you this morning and uh, we are in the second week of a series in Jeremiah and I'm so glad to share what, what God's put on my heart for this week. Jeremiah is a book that maybe a lot of us wouldn't go to regularly or maybe you've never read before. Uh, And if you have, maybe you don't remember much you've read. But as we engage this material, and we're not going to go verse by verse. It's 52 chapters. In fact, it's the longest book in the entire Bible, if you count the Hebrew words, the the language it was written in. So we can't possibly do all of those chapters in eight weeks. But we're going to skip around a little bit. But as we engage this material, you're going to see that what Jeremiah spoke out against is something that we need to have spoken out against in our own time right now, today. And in fact, what he speaks out against is... Of course, he speaks out against the nations, but what he actually speaks out against even more directly and harshly is the community of faith, the community of faith. And so we pick up, and I'm just going to do a short review. If you missed last week, you can always listen to the sermons online. Uh, but last week, we looked at two core concept as, concepts as we looked at Jeremiah's call, uh, two core things that we need to be remembered, uh, reminded of. The first is of God's protection. During Jeremiah's call, God told Jeremiah that he would protect him, but as we saw last week, protection does not mean that no harm will come to you, but that God's plan will be accomplished and that you get to be a part of it. And how do we so need to recover and rediscover that truth? We are constantly let down when we feel like God has not done what we expect, but ultimately he does not promise us that no harm will come. He promises us that his will will be accomplished and you get to be a part of it. The second thing that we learned last week, core to the book of Jeremiah, is God's message of judgment. And his message of judgment can be simply simply uh, remembered this way. God destroys what destroys us and he builds up what benefits us. God is constantly in this pattern of destroying what destroys us and building up what benefits us. This morning we skip ahead, and as we get into the second week of Jeremiah, we come to a really interesting text it 's found in Jeremiah chapter seven, verse one through chapter eight verse three it 's found on the blue books in front of you, the blue bibles in front of you on uh, page six hundred and twenty so we 've skipped uh, five chapters, uh, but we come to chapter seven, and the passage that we are going to be looking about at this morning is referred to as jeremiah 's temple sermon it 's really famous in the context of Jeremiah. It is his temple sermon. In fact, we will see in just a moment, it is called his temple sermon because God tells Jeremiah to deliver it at the gate before the people would enter into the church to worship. You know, this morning as you were entering into our door, somebody hopefully greeted you and was smiling and said, You know, welcome to Life Spring. I hope you have a nice day. And we're glad you're here. Something like this. Imagine if instead we stationed greeters outside, and as you were walking in, we gave you the message that you're about to see, which is going to be fairly negative and fairly hard to take in. That is exactly what's going on. Now, Jeremiah's temple sermon was given early uh, in the reign of King Jehoiakim, we are told. Now, you may not know this, but the temple is actually destroyed during the ministry of Jeremiah in 586 by King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. But Jehoiakim, this sermon is probably delivered uh, somewhere between 609 BC and probably 605 B.C., before the Babylonians have, have done their first deportation. And in fact, Jeremiah ch- chapter 7, if you take notes and you want to read it later, has a parallel passage in the book of Jeremiah, found in Jeremiah 26, which gives us a little more uh, historical context, early in the reign of King Jehoiakim. And here's a little bit of the history. I can do this in about a minute or two, so I won't take too much time on it. But we are told in chapter 1 of Jeremiah that Jeremiah began to prophesy in the time of King Josiah, early in the uh, the reign of King Josiah. So he begins to reign around 627 BC. Josiah dies around 610, 609, and Josiah's son takes the throne. His son's name was Jehoahaz, something like this. I may have pronounced it wrong, but when you're a preacher, you just say it with confidence and no one knows the difference, you see? So Jehoahaz takes the throne and... He lasts three months. Now, Josiah dies because Judah is sandwiched between two declining superpowers. Assyria to the north, technically to the northwest, and Egypt to the south, the southwest. And so they're sandwiched between these two declining superpowers. And to the northeast, a rising superpower is coming, Babylon. And Josiah decides that he is going to stop the Egyptians from joining with the Assyrians, because Pharaoh Necho and the, uh, the emperor, or the king of Assyria, have decided to make an alliance, and Josiah goes out to stop this alliance, because he's sandwiched in between the two of them. He dies in battle, and his son Jehoahaz takes the throne and lasts three months. The king, Pharaoh, king Pharaoh Necho, does not like that Josiah's uh, you know, gone against him, and so he takes Jehoahaz and he takes him to Egypt and puts him in chains. He puts his son Jehoiakim on the throne and Jehoiakim lasts for about 11 years. After those 11 years, he tries to rebel against the Babylonians who by this time have already conquered them. And although they've conquered them, they have not destroyed them. They've just deported many of the greatest uh, thinkers uh, and workers in Israel, thus diminishing them significantly. But he's allowing them to rule themselves. Well, Jehoiakim decides that he is going to take the throne, and he is going to stop sending tribute to Babylon. And so the king of Babylon, of course, comes and, you know, does another layer of export, uh, exile and destruction. And his son then is put in on the throne, His son, Jehoiakim's son Jehoiachin. They weren't very much creativity when it came to names. And Jehoiachin takes throne, lasts for three years, he is exiled, and Josiah's last son Zedekiah is put on the throne, and he ultimately rebels, and that is when the temple is destroyed. It's all over about a period of 23 years after the death of Josiah. Now, what happens here in the temple sermon happens at the very beginning of Jehoiakim's reign, early on after the death of Josiah. And I want to read you this text, and I'm going to read the entire thing. It's a little longer than we would normally look at, and if you've got your Bibles there, keep it there. Keep your finger in there, because we're going to be in this passage the whole time. But what we're going to see is that Jeremiah's prophecy, his temple sermon, is given against the faithful community, or we might say the unfaithful community. Whatever you want to call them, they are the ones that are going through the gate to go in for worship. He stands outside the gate, and he delivers a sermon in which he tells the people they are being hypocrites, that they are religious hypocrites. Now, hypocrisy is something that we do when we pretend that we are something we are not. We can all be hypocritical in all kinds of areas, not just religious hypocrisy, but maybe you've noticed and I've noticed that religious hypocrisy is disproportionately destructive. You know, if you say If you say, I am a vegetarian, and then I catch you eating meat, I smirk. Yeah? Uh, It's hypocrisy, but it's not incredibly destructive. But religious hypocrisy is not like that, is it? It's incredibly destructive. And so Jeremiah stands outside of the temple, and he gives them the solution to religious hypocrisy. And it is not what you might think. And so I'm going to read it to you, and you can see if you can pick it out. And as we go through, we are going to see that the solution that we may think is the answer to religious hypocrisy is not the solution at all. It is something completely different. See if you can guess it, but if you do, don't say it out loud. Remember, I get to say it. All right, (laughs) Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 1. This is the word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah. Stand at the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim this message. Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah, who come through these gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Reform your ways and your actions, and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, this is the temple of the Lord, this is the temple of the Lord. If you really change your ways and your actions, and if you deal justly with each other, if you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place, in the land I gave your ancestors forever and ever, but look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods that you have not known? And then come and stand before me in this house, which bears my name, and say, we are safe, safe to do all of these detestable things. Has this house, which bears my name, become a den of robbers to you? I have been watching you, says the Lord. So go now to the place in Shiloh, where I first made a dwelling for my name, and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. While you were doing all these things, declares the Lord, I spoke to you again and again, but you did not listen. I called to you, but you did not answer. Therefore, what I did to Shiloh, I will now do to the house that bears my name, the temple you trust in, the place I gave to your ancestors. I will thrust you from my presence, just as I did all your fellow Israelites, the people of Ephraim. So, and he's speaking to Jeremiah here. Do not pray for this people, nor offer any plea or petition for them. Do not plead with me, for I will listen to you. Do you not see what they are doing in the towns of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood, the fathers light the fire, and the women knead the dough and make cakes to offer to the queen of heaven. They pour out drink offerings to other gods. They arouse my anger. But am I the one they are provoking, declares the Lord? Or are they not harming their own selves to their own shame? Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. My anger and my wrath will be poured out on this place, on man and beast, on the trees and on the field, of the field, and on the crops of your land, and it will burn and it will not be quenched. This is what the Lord says, the God of Israel says. Go ahead, add your burnt offerings to your other offerings and eat the meat yourselves. For when I brought your ancestors out of Egypt, I spoke to them. I did not just give them commands about burnt offerings and sacrifices, but I gave them this command. Obey me, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. Walk in obedience to all I command you, that it may go well with you. But they did not listen or pay attention. Instead, they followed the stubborn inclinations of their hearts. They went backward and not forward. From the time your ancestors left Egypt until now, day after day, again and again, I sent you my servants, the prophets. But they did not listen to me or pay attention. They were stiff-necked and did more evil than their ancestors. When you tell them all of this, they will not listen to you. When you call to them, they will not answer. Therefore, say to them, this is the nation that has obeyed the Lord. It's God, or responded to correct, has not obeyed the Lord. It's God, or responded to correction. Truth has perished. It has vanished from their lips. Cut off your hair and throw it away. Take up a lament on the barren heights, for the Lord has rejected and abandoned this generation that is under his wrath. The people of Judah have done evil in the sight of the Lord. They have set up their detestable idols in the house that bears my name, and they have defiled it. They have built the high places of Topheth in the valley of Ben-Hinnom to burn their sons and daughters in the fire. Something I did not command, nor did it ever even enter into my mind. So beware. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when people will no longer call it Topheth or the valley of Ben-Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. For they will bury the dead in Topheth until there is no more room. Then the carcasses of this people... Will become food for the birds and the wild animals, and there will be no one to frighten them away. I will bring an end to the sounds of joy and gladness, and to the voices of bride and bridegroom in the towns of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem, for the land will become desolate. At that time, declares the Lord, the bones of the kings and officials of Judah, the bones of the priests and the prophets, and the bones of the people of Jerusalem will be removed from their graves. They will be exposed to the sun. And the moon and the stars of heaven, which they have loved and served, in which they have followed and consulted, in which they have worshiped. They will not be gathered or buried, but will lie like dung lying on the ground. And wherever I banish, all the survivors of the evil nation, of this evil nation, will pre- pre- prefer death to life, declares the Lord Almighty. So, go warm. Be filled and smile. This is why preachers don't preach the prophets very often. They're heavy and they're difficult. But I want to bring to your attention some perspective to what Jeremiah says in these incredibly harsh words. There's really four kind of movements to his sermon. I want to point them out to you. And I want to end the sermon by reflecting on my own life And how, in whatever small ways, I've taken steps towards overcoming that which Jeremiah rails against. Religious hypocrisy. And that's the danger of being a preacher or pastor, isn't it? You kind of got to work on the things you say. Nobody's perfect at it. But I will share with you the steps that have helped me overcome or improve on And the thing with hypocrisy is we're we're all blind to it. Like, we can't see ourselves perfectly. And so, but I'll tell you the steps I've taken to help overcome it. But before we get there, before we see the solution to religious hypocrisy, I want you to feel the weight of what Jeremiah says in this sermon. So I'll give you the four movements. And I'll help you understand that which might have not been understandable when I read it the first time. We start in verse 2, very simply, with the audience that Jeremiah is talking about. Jeremiah's audience, and it's very clear his audience here. His audience is the religious. Imagine the setting. I've already alluded to it, but imagine the setting of going to a church or a place of worship or the synagogue back in those times, 2,600 years ago. And imagine a preacher before the preacher telling you, you are doing wrong even before you enter the doors. You know, what Jeremiah is trying to help us see is he's helping us see into our own hearts and lives. And and I think we kind of all know this. What happens if we're not really, really careful is we come into this church building and we think we are kind of the good ones and out there is kind of the bad ones, you know? That's a really crass and simple way to put it. But Jeremiah is trying to fight against that. And instead of saying, you know, you are the good ones, And out there, the people who aren't here, they're the bad ones. Jeremiah is looking straight at the people who are entering into worship and saying, you are the bad ones. You are the ones that must reform. I mentioned earlier, of course, hypocrisy is a big deal. But in religious context, it's a really big deal. I made a little joke about, uh, you know, the vegetarian and the meat eater. And we smile at that. Or There's all kinds of things that we're hypocritical. And some of it is, right, if we're charitable towards one another instead of just jumping down each other's throats, we realize that even if we were to make a list of things we think we should and shouldn't do, it's really hard to do the things we think we should do. It's not necessarily that we're trying to be hypocritical. It's just... We have a vision of ourselves of what it should look like. And oftentimes, we are willing to trade that vision in for something less. You know, McDonald's for broccoli, sitting for running, or just maybe small movements, you know. We're willing to trade in quality time with our families for American Idol, right? There's all kinds of things that we make these trades And if you were to go to me and you were to say, do you value TV more or your family? I would say, well, of course I value my family. But, you know, sometimes it doesn't look like that if you were to see. If you were to say, I value generosity, and then we were to look at your checkbook, some of us would be like, well, I do value it. It's just really hard, you know. It's expensive to live, you know. We're all kind of hypocritical, but I've noticed that religious hypocrisy is even more destructive than all those other hypocritical ways. And here's why I think it's so destructive. And here's why I think Jeremiah stations himself outside of the temple to speak. Because when we are religiously hypocritical, we set up a standard of what it looks like to follow God that is untrue, which we don't keep, and which destroys the faith whether it's real or budding or non-existent, the potential faith of those in our path. And so Jeremiah's audience is the the faith community. Certainly there are tons of times in the Bible, they're much less frequent, when the prophets condemn the nations. And if you read the book of Jeremiah, and I don't know if I'll... We'll see if I do something on the nations. There's just so much of that too. But Jeremiah's worst condemnation is not for Babylon. It's not for the surrounding nations. It's for the nation of Judah. Jeremiah's worst condemnation is not for those outside. It's for those inside. Jesus' worst condemnation, and if you were to read the Gospels, you could say almost his exclusive condemnation. Almost was not for those outside of the faith community, but those inside the faith community. Why is that? And it really comes to Jeremiah's next movement in his sermon. It's his offer. Jeremiah's offer. His offer is simple, and it is this. It is repent and live. Repent and live. Now look at me in the te- with me in the text in Jeremiah 3 through 8. And actually I want to draw your attention specifically to verse 4. See the text says, "Do not trust in deceptive words." And those deceptive words are kind of unusual. They may have stood out even as I was reading it. This is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. That trifold repetition. It'd be like saying something, "Do not trust in deceptive words" and so- one of you saying even though knowing that you have injustice in all kinds of evil in your heart and in your life, you say, but I go to church, but I go to church, but I go to church, right? That'd be the same exact thing. Jeremiah is saying, do not trust in deceptive words. And in the book of Jeremiah, and we, we won't touch on all of this as we go through in the series, so I wanna draw your attention to a few spots. Jeremiah, one of the major themes of the book is his... Um, his fighting, his infighting with himself and the other prophets that exist in the nation of Judah. And I'll show you a couple examples. You won't have to turn far. Turn with me the very uh, page that goes before this. Just turn one page back to chapter 5, verse 12. And you'll see that Jeremiah describes the deceptive words of the false prophets. Chapter 5, verse 12. They have lied about the Lord They have said, He will do nothing, no harm will come to us, we will never see the sword or famine. And if you turn a couple pages forward in Jeremiah, I like this one even better, chapter 14, verse 13, you will see that Jeremiah says, But I I said, Alas, sovereign Lord, the prophets keep telling them, You will not see the sword or famine, but indeed, Uh, You will not see the sword or famine. Indeed, I will give them a lasting peace. You see, Jeremiah's false prophets that he was uh, contemporary with in the nation of Judah, Jeremiah had a message. (laughs) You are doomed because of your sin. That was his message. God destroys what destroys you, and your sin is destroying you. The false prophets had a message, a much more popular message. You are safe despite what you've done. You are safe, despite what you've done. And Jeremiah is extending to the people an offer, and the language of prophecy is always extremely hyperbolic. You'll notice that as you go through these prophecies, and you may have noticed some even here, that God's fire will go against the nation of Judah, and it will never be quenched. But of course, Jeremiah says in other places that he will not be exiled forever, that you'll be led back to the land. He's not lying. speaking within the language of prophetic uh, discourse. He is using prophetic hyperbole to stir the hearts and the imaginations of the evil of their sin. But the way he is stirring them is he offers them a true, real offer. In Jeremiah chapter seven, verse three, repent or reform your ways and you will live. But you see, the problem is The people of Judah, not the outsiders, not the non-churchgoers or the non-temple goers, the churchgoers of the people of Judah are going to church, but they don't care. They sit in whatever the color chairs were that day, but they are not willing to reform. They go, but they will not change. And listen to what Jeremiah says. You can even turn there again. It's in Jeremiah 14, verse 7. And I'm sorry for having you move around a little bit. But I want you to see this. So critical. Jeremiah 14, 7. Jeremiah comes to this place. And I want you to notice his emotional state and his prayer for the people of Judah. He says, although our sins testify against us, do something, Lord, for the sake of your name. For we have often rebelled. We have sinned against you. I highlighted that little verse in my Bible, and I wrote next to it, the heart of repentance, because that's what it is. I have sinned against you. But you know what the problem is? That's beautiful. But the problem is Jeremiah is praying it on the behalf of a people who do not feel it. He is praying that they might see their sins, that God might be merciful and gracious, and that the sin of the people might cause them to repent. As we sing so often in that song, your loving kindness leads me to repentance. But in the case of the, Jude, the people of Judah, God's loving kindness, patience, and long-suffering has not led them to repentance, but has led them towards greater sin, apathy, and rejection of God. And so Jeremiah pleads with God, please, do not do as our sins deserve. For we have sinned. But for your sake, deal with us. According to your loving kindness, the problem is Jeremiah prays that on the behalf of a people who do not see it. How many times have we seen a mother or a father and they look at their son or their daughter who is leaving the Lord, who is walking away from God, and they pray something just like Jeremiah 14:7 don't they just like it god do not treat my son or daughter as they deserve for your loving kindness bring them back but the truth is although that prayer is heartfelt it must require the repentance of the person who is walking away and god always Always forgives. He is our perfect Heavenly Father, just as the story of the prodigal son teaches us, who stands at the end of his driveway looking into the distance, waiting for us to return. And as he scans the future, as he sees us, he does not close his arms like this, saying, you know, bad, bad, you should not come. He opens them wide to hug, to kiss, to kill the fatted calf, and to robe us with splendor and glory as his son. But no amount of praying on Jeremiah's behalf can change the heart and the attitude of those who do not feel that way towards God. We must value our own hearts. I want you to notice something else about this I think is so critical. I've noticed this so often within the life of the church. Notice that Jeremiah does not feel humiliated or beat down or put down to pray a prayer of corporate confession on the behalf of his people. Listen to me really closely. So often in our churches, in this church, we see things that are wrong and we think to ourselves, but I haven't done that. It can happen in all kinds of areas. Racism, the way way our country and the church has treated homosexuals, uh, the way we've treated all kinds of people that are unlike us. And we may think to ourselves, I'm a part of the church and I haven't done that, so therefore I do not need the heart of repentance. You do. You do. And it's not that you maybe have done it, but Jeremiah, and it always is like this because this is what love does, enters into the heart and the lives of the church or his people, on their behalf. And we individually must repent of our sin, and we as a corporate body, and as individuals who make up the corporate body, must repent and grieve over the sins of the church that have marginalized those who are not like us. You know, I don't know, like there's no good in being a victim all your life, but I've noticed if you've never gone through something that is really hard and you see someone who has gone through something that is really hard and they're handling it poorly, I've just noticed that suck it up has never really been all that effective. And so it is okay, even if maybe you personally have not committed the offense to enter into the heart of repentance And I've noticed that softens the hearts of those who do so. And it softens the hearts of those outside. The third thing we see in Jeremiah's sermon is we've seen first his audience, you know, the religious. His second, we've seen his offer, repent and live. The the third thing we see in verses nine through 11 is Jeremiah's warning. And his warning is the Lord is watching. There is a complacency That takes place when we feel like no one is watching. But Jeremiah says God is watching. And what is God seeing? Jeremiah makes it very, very clear for us, doesn't he? You can look at your text or you can just look at me and you can hear me say what he says. He says God is seeing injustice towards the foreigner, the orphan, and the widow in verse 5 and 6. He sees God is seeing murder taking place in verse 6 and 9. But notice in verse 6, he not only says murder is happening, he says murder is happening in this place, in the temple itself. Is this him saying that there's actually killing going on in the temple or perhaps it's murder in their heart? I don't know. But murder is taking place. He says that idolatry is happening in verses 6 and 9. He says stealing and adultery and perjury and visit verse 9, are prevalent and rampant. You see, God is watching. And what was God seeing? Evil, simply put. Notice that these are not the gray areas of life. They're not gray. They're not, he's not saying, God looked down from heaven, and he is watching, and he saw you had a beer. He is not saying, God looked down, and he caught you. You went to a square dance. He's not saying, I caught you, you were playing euchre with your family. You see? They're not the gray areas in life. Murder. Injustice towards those who have no voice. Adultery. Lying or perjury. Stealing. The people of Judah engage in this stuff. And what do they say? We see it in verse 10. We are safe. We are safe. And we feel that way at times. I often say one of the most damaging things to us spiritually that can possibly take place is to sin and have no one discover it. To sin and feel as though no consequences are forthcoming. It's dangerous to you because you will get into a state similar to what Jeremiah's audience did. Committing acts of destruction and evil against each other, not the gray areas. Murder, stealing, idolatry, lying, adultery, and saying, we are safe. We are safe. The evil that Jeremiah describes, and he gives you a few examples, but what it stands for is any action that destroys a relationship with another person or with their God, any relationship that destroys their relationships with others or with their God. And so, although the majority of this sermon focuses on the last component, his last movement. In fact, it's almost the entire thing. Right, chapter seven, verse uh, chapter seven, verse twelve, all the way to chapter eight, verse three, focuses on judgment. You must feel the weight of Israel's lack of repentance in their evil to understand that judgment is not a Zeus throwing lightning bolts at random acts. What would a God who does not judge the evil of this world be like? And I would suggest he wouldn't be a very good God. But his judgment, as we saw last week, is not to, de- is to destroy what destroys us and to build up what benefits us. And so here's his judgment. Jeremiah's message, the last component, and I'm going to skip this stuff. I'm not going to explain all of it to you because uh, I want to tell you some about my own life and I want to take you home and help you destroy the hold of religious hypocrisy on your life. But his fourth movement in his sermon is, is his message. Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. The safety you feel at a lack of repentance over your real evil that is destroying your relationships means that judgment is coming. In verse 12 through 16 or 15, you see a little example about Shiloh. You know, Shiloh was actually the first place that God had a permanent dwelling. In fact, in the book of First Samuel, the beginning, the priest, uh, the priest Eli, lives in Shiloh, because that was the first place. Now, the Bible does not record the destruction of Shiloh. It references it a few times, mainly in Jeremiah, and there's one instance in the Psalms. But what God is saying, if I was willing to destroy the house where my people worship me, then don't you think I take this kind of serious, right? The text continues on judgment. And he says to Jeremiah, do not pray for them, for their sin is destroying them, and their sin must be destroyed. In verse 20, he says, my anger will not be quenched. Of course, we know this is prophetic hyperbole. For if they repent, they will live. And in the end, in Jeremiah 31, which we'll look at in a few weeks, we will get the kind of the climax of the hope that is found in the book of Jeremiah, the new covenant, that he will restore their hearts where their true problem lies. In verses 21 through 29, Jeremiah says to the people very clearly, the reason destruction is coming is because your sin will continue. And in verse chapter 7, verse 30 through 8:3, he does the most graphic description of the evil of their sin as uh, exemplified in their actions in Beth-Hinnom or Topheth, the valley of Beth-Hinnom, in building an idol to the God, the Canaanite god of, uh, of Molech, who was a god who was this huge bronze statue who had his arms outstretched and they'd put their infant child in and there was a fire basin at the bottom and he would slide to the bottom and he would burn up and they would beat drums so they couldn't hear the cry of the baby. And so if there's any question whether judgment is fair, he ends that way. Because religious hypocrisy does not just stay at pretending. It leads to evil. The evil of destroying other people's lives. And so this morning, I want to talk to you and conclude and hopefully bring it a little more lighthearted because I'm feeling a little bit heavy. I'm looking at you guys. You guys look a little bit heavy. I don't blame you. But I want to show you how you can break the evil of religious hypocrisy. Religious hypocrisy is destroyed by developing a broken heart over what breaks God's heart. We may think the opposite, actually. I think most of us think the way to break religious hypocrisy is to reform our actions. But it's not true. Of course, actions matter, but actions don't Completely matter. What matters is that we change our heart so that our heart reflects God's heart. And the heart change must be a broken and contrite heart over what breaks God's heart. Not just changed actions. Imagine with me there's a husband and the husband has an affair and the wife finds out about it and she doesn't like it very much. I don't know any wife who would. And imagine now the husband comes back and he says to her, you're right, I can see you don't like this, I will no longer do it. It wasn't wrong, but I won't do it. You don't like it. And he does. Let's say he's successful. And they go on to have a marriage, whatever it is, and it lasts for years. He never repents or is sorry over what he has done. He just has the strength to behavior modify and to not do it again. Let me ask you, do you think that's a marriage of joy and happiness, of satisfaction, of intimacy? He's modified his behavior, (laughs) but I would guess it would fall very much into an employee-employer relationship. You have kept the contract. Here's food and clean clothes. And thank you for going to work so that I can buy food and run the energy to clean your clothes. See? The heart of repentance is what destroys religious hypocrisy. But the heart of repentance is not about behavior modification. Of course that comes of course it comes it doesn't mean that we don't modify our behavior but behavior modification without mental modification does very little in fact i would argue that husband probably feels fairly superior i on my own power have stopped doing what displeases my wife even though it wasn't wrong and i have the power to not do it you see Behavior modification without mental modification is ugly. Mental modification will lead to behavior modification. Let me turn with you, have you turn with me in your Bibles to a passage in Luke. Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. We're coming to the runway. It's getting close. But I want you to feel something for a second. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this story, this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, who was a religious leader, and the other a tax collector, who in that culture was the worst of the worst. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get, but the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went justified, home justified before God, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. The heart of repentance does your heart break at what breaks god's heart now listen what breaks god's heart what breaks god's heart is the mistreatment of people the destroying of our relationships the evil of superiority that marginalizes and destroys That's what breaks God's heart. The way we treat each other and the way we relate to him. I'm pretty sure it's not euchre or dancing. What breaks God's heart is the way we treat other people. So how do we fix our attitude? It's not that easy, isn't it? It's actually a little easier to say, okay, for in the short term at least, to say, you know, I know my wife doesn't like this, so I'm going to stop it in the short term. It's easier to behavior modify than it is to change your attitude. You know, how do I just change my attitude? How does that do, how do I do that? I feel this way to certain types of people or I feel this way about certain things. Certain ideas. How do I change my attitude about those things? All I can share is what's worked for me, but I would imagine it'll work for you. It's a message this church and every church needs to hear. And the message is one you hear often here. The message is of engagement. If you want to be broken over what breaks God's heart, and if what breaks God's heart is the destructive judgmental attitudes that destroy relationships and alienate other people, then what you need to do is you need to start engaging people that are nothing like you. I'm reading this book. I I talked about it a couple weeks ago called Confident Pluralism. It's really, really good. And the first couple chapters were really tough, but the rest were really good. And it's not a book telling us (laughs) to be pluralistic. So just put that out of your head, that everything is okay. Okay. But it is a book teaching us how can we survive and thrive in a world that has deep differences. How can we connect and relate to people who are nothing like us without becoming like them and still having convictions in which we relate to them. In the book, there's a couple beautiful stories. One is in Missouri. There was a group, uh, you know, a pro-life group, that their whole uh, reason for existing was to defeat Roe versus Wade. It was in their mission statement. There was another group in Missouri, of course, that wanted to abort babies, and it was their mission to help, uh, help families through you know, giving women the choice uh, to abort babies. Generally, what happens in our culture and our world is these two groups fight against each other, name-call, and nothing ever gets accomplished. But instead, the leaders of these two organizations decided they were going to do something really, 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 really simple. They were going to have dinner regularly. And they were going to get to know each other. And they never changed their opinions. The one always thought pro-life was okay, or was the only way, and the other one was convinced that it wasn't. But they discovered that they both believed that unwanted pregnancy was not good for our country and for their area, and they started working together to diminish unwanted pregnancy. I probably will never understand the pro-choice movement. It's just not who who I am. But I love those people who are pro-choice. And I grieve for the women who have done an act like that. Because I I don't just care about what I see to be a baby that is now gone, but a life that is now being colored and destroyed by that action. But there can be common ground. And do you see where it started? With hamburgers and pizza. Dinner. Talking. There was another story in the book of Confident Pluralism about a mayor who was openly gay in Portland, Oregon. And the church leaders of Portland, Oregon, went to that mayor and said, how can we make our city better? And both groups, before coming together, hated each other. Because generally, if somebody says to another person, what you are is an evil and I don't like anything about you, it just doesn't foster intimacy I've noticed in life, you see? But that church leader went to him and they discovered that although, and they never agreed, the other side never said that the gay lifestyle is okay and the other side never tried to convince them, they came together on common ground. And it happened because of engagement. Because they came together Together. And they were able to do great things in Portland, Oregon. It said they got like 26,000 volunteers through the church involved in Oregon. And the mayor made a statement that our city has been transformed due to their activity. They still didn't agree, but they engaged. That is a message that we need. If our church is to avoid religious hypocrisy, I will ask you some simple questions. How many people do you know that are not like you? How many people that are not like with you, like you, do you engage regularly? What do people that are nothing like you think about you? How do you feel they think about you? Because I know one thing, people that were nothing like Jesus, like Jesus. And so If they don't, it may not be that you are being pure doctrinally. It may be that you need to reconsider your approach. Because we can be different and we can engage. And you know what? That is what success looks like in the church. That is the very vision of success that people who do not know Jesus would be drawn to Jesus, and we are what in the New Testament? The body of Christ. So we embody that. and So people who are nothing like Jesus should sit in gray chairs at Sunday at 9 and 10.30 in Canada, New York, because that is what success looks like. And as we engage people that are nothing like us, Our hypocrisy will be transformed, not because of behavior modification, but because of mental modification. And the biggest obstacles to it, man, I have so much to say on this topic, are threefold. And I'm going to close, and I'm not even going to land the plane very well because I'm out of time. But there are three obstacles to it. First, your speech. When you say crazy things, crazy things things, then people don't want to be around you. People that are different do not want to be like you. I've heard some people say that I really love and are close to me. Barack Obama wants to purposely destroy our country. Now, he's not our president anymore, but how do you think a person who's a Democrat feels about you when you say that? Our speech destroys. Second, (laughs) second thing, our speech, the second is our unfamiliarity. Unfamiliarity destroys. Not only our speech, but many of us get entrenched, and we only come into contact with people that are just like us. So, if you want to learn about politics, and all you ever do is listen to Rush Limbaugh, you're probably not going to ever understand somebody that doesn't think like you. Third, our, our 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 physical geography, our presence. If we are never around people, you know, if we, don't, if we never get around them, we'll never become familiar enough with them so that we don't talk bad about them. And I know each and every one of you is capable of this because I've experienced many of you who have sons and daughters who think differently and act differently in ways that you wish that were different. Some of it's spouses. Some of you, it's children. Some of you, it's your best friends. And you know what you do? You expand the sphere of your love because you love them which is why I pray that our sphere of love might always expand in this church. We're not the same, but this church represents one thing, a community of faith that believes that Jesus is the crucified, resurrected, and coming again, Son of God, and we long that he might return. Let me pray for you. Father, I pray that you'd break our heart over what breaks yours and break the hold of religious hypocrisy that exists in our communities Help us to evaluate ourselves as individuals and as a body and transform our hearts so that we might look more and more like unto the image of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.